Morning, everyone. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 11. So you turn your Bibles on or open them up. Mark 11 this morning. Uh, we're starting two weeks in a series we're calling Kingdom Politics. Why? Why are we looking at kingdom politics? Um, because all around us at the moment are political movements, social movements, polarised views, the emergence and polarisation of tribes. We stand for this thing here and you're either with us or you're part of the problem. Um, depending on your social circle and your demographic, there's pressure to conform with this tribe or that and religious institutions around us are buying into this political and social movement scene across the world. Even in Australia, we see churches and lobby groups aligning politically, sometimes even aggressively so. And so we're in a bit of a political uh, hothouse, a political and social hothouse at the moment. How do we negotiate that as followers of Jesus? Which tribes should Christians align with and how do we know? Uh, because there are good causes, yeah? There are reasons for this. There are issues that matter and different issues stir our hearts depending on who we are. Which social or political issues matter most to you? Which issues stir for you uh, most? What would you sign a petition for? What would you decorate your social media profile with? What would you march for? What would you go to prison for? What would you strongly defend in a discussion with someone that you just met? Religious freedoms? Black Lives Matter? Marriage definitions? Refugees? Violence against women? Abortion, climate change, the list goes on, does it not? Who should we align with? Which tribes are good and which are bad? Which causes matter more? And are these even the right questions to be asking? Let's look back at what Jesus did because he's our example and we'll find help here. Jesus lived on earth in a time that was tingling with political and social movements. Israel was a conquered people, mostly subsistence living. Um, people in that first century Palestine area, had they paid their temple taxes because they, they were religious states. So um, they were Jews who still had ad- adherence to their um, nationalism, their religious nationalism. So they paid their temple tax. But the Romans were their conquerors, so they also paid the tax to the, to the Romans. Um, and they weren't earning that much. You've got... In the midst of that, you've got Roman sympathisers, so Jews that are like, we've just got to align with this new power. This is the way the world is going. You know, if we don't get on board, we're going to get uh, left behind or trampled on. Uh, you've got Jewish nationalists. We've got to kick these aggressors out. You know, it's not, not so much about God as us as a people. We're Jews. Uh, and you've got violent uh, zealots. That is, you know, we have to take this nation because of God. You know, to honour him, we've got to fight um, physically. You've got insurrectionists acting in God's name. You've got all of this kind of uh, ferment in religious and nationalistic discontent and fear and tension, and Jesus is right in the middle of it. And through his ministry, people have tried to pin him to a cause. The crowd tries to make him king by force. The disciples want him to lead in their glorious rebellion to take back the land. You know, they want, they want um, nationalistic power now. They want the Messiah to rule and reign on this earth right now. Um, and the people who are in power, both the religious power and state power, see Jesus as a threat to their power bases. And so far he's dodged all of that. He's rejected alignment with any of the social or political tribes around him. In fact, it's very confusing to the people 
around him. People are like, he's got all this power. He's calming storms. He's here, you know, casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's commanding illness and nature and he's turning water into wine. Like he's just, like it's a, he's got all this power. What is he doing? Every time you try and grip him, he's kind of somewhere else. So far, he's dodged all that. And everyone's confused. The ones who like him are confused and the ones who don't are confused too. But in the Passion Week, in the lead up to Easter, this is why we're doing this now, in the lead up to his trial and execution, Jesus declares himself openly and shows us what he's really all about. And in our sermons today and next week, Pete Harris and I will take you through um, important principles we learn from Jesus that will help us, his followers, that is, we of the kingdom. When we say kingdom, we mean where Jesus' rule and reign um, is real, where it actually happens. We as kingdom people will do well amongst the various socio-political movements of our day. This is kingdom politics. So we're looking today at the um, events that happen after the triumphal entry. So um, Pete will look at that next week. Um, they're recorded, these events are recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke, um, directly after when Jesus comes in Jerusalem on a donkey with a celebration in the crowd and all of that. In John, there's a similar event listed at more at the start of Jesus' ministry. Um, but today, we're based today in Mark, but we'll refer to the other Gospels as we go through. Because um, so if you're new to faith or you, haven't, you don't know how you kind of Bible's oriented yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection um, here. So four different perspectives on that same uh, uh, you know, group of events. So here we go, Mark 11, start, starting at verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, so he's just, per, he's just come into, the, into Jerusalem on a donkey with crowds going, yeah, Hosanna to the son of David, you know. And, um, and kids are um, jumping up and down and saying, yay, and the religious leaders are telling him off, saying, so and so's kids, and Jesus is going, I can't. If I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to explode. Like, it's this big, um, you know, like, parade in. This is, happens just after that. He goes into Jerusalem to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Um, there's a little uh, issue with the fig tree in the middle. If you do your life group notes, I'll put that in for you. We're not going to look at fig trees today. Jumping back to the temple, verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. See, Jesus so far is totally nonviolent, like exclusively nonviolent, but not because he's weak. He's a builder carpenter and if you understand your history on first century Palestine there's not a lot of trees around there so a lot of the work that Jesus probably do, uh, has done is with stone so if in the closest equivalent to that for us is a stonemason um, so he's he's not weak he's used to working with his hands but there's some strength in him and we also know this because he got whipped 39 times with a Roman scourge which is usually enough to kill somebody and he's still standing um, beyond that. We don't know a lot about Jesus' physical kind of status, but we know that he's, he doesn't look like me. No, he's not, he's not, he's not, um, he's not weak. 
And we also know because some of these things that he's doing here, they require some strength. Um, you know, these, are, these, are not, um, these are not flimsy things that he's throwing around here. So he's not weak, he's just nonviolent. In fact, once they even try, pushed him up and tried to throw him off a cliff, and he just dodged them and escaped. Didn't even fight back then. But here, the force of his physical strength is seen. He's angry. He's not angry in a, oh, I don't know what came over me kind of way. He's angry in a, oh, have a look at this. I'm going to go and sleep on it, and I'm going to do something about this issue. Mm. This is a considered response, not a reaction. He plans it out. He scopes it out the night before. In John's account, Jesus sits down first and makes a whip out of ropes. So like, oh, this is really upsetting me. Let me just prepare. I'm going to make this whip. Mm. And here he comes, entering the temple, brandishing his whip. Get out, out! Vendors and animals are fleeing in alarm. Over to the money changers, over the tables go. Coins everywhere, people scrabbling in the dirt, you know, to retrieve their money. They scramble for the exit. He's like, out, get out, get out! Over here. This is activism, right? This is protest to the extreme. He's going to upset the authorities majorly. This is really, this is a death warrant um, for Jesus. He's way out on a limb. But again, why here? People must have been so confused. What's he doing? Why is he attacking the normal people, like our people, just going about their business in our normal kind of religious setting? Like there's lots of places you could be excited about, Jesus, that you could use your strength and your power and stuff. Why here? What about the Romans? What about the Jews who love the Romans? What about the oppressive civil authority? What about the ones who say they're religious, but actually they're just all after our money? What about all of that corruption and greed and stuff around here? What, you're coming to the sanctuary, and you're attacking normal people like us. Why are you getting angry at people in our temple? Jesus yells out his reason. This is supposed to be what? This is supposed to be... A house of prayer for all nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. He's referring there to this prophecy hundreds of years before by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56, starting at verse 6, where God says, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. Which is, reflects God's heart always um, in the biblical narrative. You know this, when God calls Abraham, he says, what? I'll make you a blessing to who? All nations. In Genesis 12, in Isaiah 49, uh, God says, to his servant, talking of the Messiah, it's too small a thing for you just to save Israel. You will be a light to the nations. 
inherent in the purpose of Israel as a nation is to shine so bright that people from other nations would say God and be attracted to God, which is, which is why in their kind of religious motive, if you like, they've got this place in their temple, which is the court of the Gentiles, that is, everyone who's not a Jew. This is the place in the temple where the people who aren't Jews are allowed to come and worship God. That's where Jesus walks in with his whip, in that place. Because even though it was kind of in their religion, it wasn't really in their psyche. In fact, their popular kind of um, myths around the Messiah was that he would come and he would vindicate Jerusalem and the Jews and he would drive everyone who wasn't a Jew out of the temple. (laughs) That was what they wanted to see. So at Passover, with Jews arriving from all over the place to offer sacrifices, the only place available to non-Jews was filled with market stalls. The Roman um, historian Josephus records that over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover in Jerusalem. That's a lot of lambs. And that's all for the worship of Yahweh. That's the temple. So you can sense the commerce happening in the temple. Also, we know this. You couldn't be sure that your animal was going to be pure enough because that was mediated by the, the uh, religious officials at the temple. So many people just came and they bought animals that were for sale there. You know, much like when you go on a ride you know, and they sell you the, the, the wet poncho before you get on so that you don't get soaked at the end for 20 bucks for this little thin bit of plastic. That kind of, it's not the same thing, but you know what I mean. So you can't... You, you can't, um, you know, if you want to provide a worthy sacrifice, we've got doves here, we've got lambs here. Um, you can buy them at these exorbitant prices because they're holy, pure lambs kind of thing. But the problem also was all the coinage around the area had the emperor's stamp on it. And they were like, you cannot bring that face into God's temple. So we've got our temple currency that doesn't have the emperor's face on it. And so we did to exchange that money for a fee. Um, now I've walked for two days probably with my maybe sacrifice but certainly with my savings because I'm a subsistence farmer I land at the temple um, and I want to buy a dove and they go that's going to be this much money but not that coin so I go over here and that's what's going on in this marketplace that was the temple that's just the people of Israel so if you come from outside that if you're a non-Jew and you enter that court of the Gentiles if you like you've got to go through that whole rigmarole and then you walk into where you're supposed to be able to worship and it is Chadston, which is, yeah, if my theology is wrong, by the way, I'm going to end up in Chadston. That's my theory. <laughs> Not really. It is like it's, a, it's crazy in there. It is mad. There are animals and people and noise and coins and um, commerce everywhere. For the Jews, it was Passover as usual. It was church as usual. It was just people doing their thing in their normal, traditional, religious spaces as usual. Doing the things they always had. For the stallholders, it's their boom time. It's just business, right? We're just upholding the religious standards, the traditional values, what we've always done. No, Jesus says, no. You're stopping people from coming to meet with God. This is place is supposed to welcome people. From everywhere who want to meet with God, this is one of the biggest deals in the kingdom that the people of God would embrace everyone who wants to come and meet with God. And you are in the way. You want to see God angry? Just get in the way of his people coming to him. Just put up a fence. Yeah, you can come, but you're going to need 
better clothes than that, or everyone's welcome, but maybe just stay well till, you, till your language is cleaner or until you smell better or until you believe the same important things that we believe. See, we want you here, but we don't really want you here until you look like us. Just do that. Anytime I start thinking, I'm quite happy for that person to feel excluded from the family of God, I just picture Jesus marching into my life with his whip. <laughs> Bit graphic. Oh no, you read the account. What do you think? What do you think? This is the priority of the kingdom, the persistent, unconditional offer of welcome to everyone who wants to come home to God. Um, when I was a pastor at, down in the Rosebud uh, Church before I was here, uh, we'd recruited a youth pastor who was about this tall and about this wide, solid guy, um, cyclist, like really fit um, and angry, redhead. Not that he just happened to be a redhead and angry. I'm not drawing that association there. <laughs> that was just for Catherine. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we, he started to work with some kids who are from tougher background because um, where, where we were working there, there was a lower socioeconomic space as well. Lots of the church came from outside that demographic into that place to worship and then went back to their more sanitized suburbs. But where we were... It was a lower socioeconomic space. And this guy, this youth pastor, he was only one day a week. He'd started working with these kids, and they were coming to church. But we had a one-biscuit policy for children in our church that was pretty strongly policed. And we all knew that. Everybody understood that because you've got to share them. And some kids, you know, like nobody gets any biscuits otherwise. And, um, and some of our people were getting a little irate because we had these rat bag kids coming into the, you know, after the church space, and they were just hocking away on the biscuits. Now, Stan knew those kids hadn't eaten anything. Maybe not since yesterday morning. Um, but we don't know that, because they're our tray of biscuits, and we've got normal children in here who know they're only allowed to have one, who are like, huh, when these other kids are just... And so this poor lady... Um, I say poor lady. So she's here on this side of the room where the biscuits are. Stan's talking to some of these other kids. This young 11, 12-year-old kid comes over and he puts his hand up to get another biscuit and she goes, no. <laughs> You've had one. Like that. Stands. <laughs> oh, I just told his name. He's over here. He goes, boom, 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 <laughs> over the room. Grabs this lady by the shirt thing against the wall. Never hurt my kids. Like that. <gasps> this is like this pin drop. I thought, I am going to cop so much trouble over this. This is going to be a nightmare. You know what? Nobody said boo. We just bought more biscuits. I'm condoning that action. But that heart, yeah. No fences. Because people need to come home to God. So we want to be people that, with open arms, to welcome the lost home. That's the kingdom of God. Let's follow Jesus and be passionate about his kingdom. Um, like Jesus said to Pilate in his trial, my kingdom's not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. And here's the other application I want us to really grasp in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you realize that all of you together 
are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you. So this building is just a building. Um, the temple is you and I, the Holy Spirit living in us. And uh, more importantly, the way we relate to each other, the connections between us, the way we treat other people, that is where God's presence is felt. That's us. And we have outer courts. We have a court of the Gentiles. In, a, in my life, I have one in the way I interact with people. As a community here, we have one in the way we interact with people. And we want to make sure that our temple is not filled with clutter. You know, the things that matter to us. That we're not just offering the world our strong views on all kinds of issues and chanting our party slogans and insisting on our traditions and posting our rants and convincing ourselves that we're fighting for the truth. Look at Jesus. Our causes are not more important than his. His kingdom is not one of power and control of lobby groups and tribes. His kingdom is upside down to ours. His kingdom is one of selfless love and inner transformation as more people see him and follow him. His kingdom in us moves us to love, to offer selfless care and help and a persistent desire and passion to welcome the lost home. Remember when Paul was before Agrippa? He's in chains and he's on trial for his faith. And now they're saying, give you defense. And he says, I'd rather talk about Jesus. Really, is what he says. And then the guy who's tried, King Agrippa says, are you trying to make me a Christian too? And he goes, yep. <laughs> I want everyone here to be just like me, except for these chains. I wouldn't like, I know, I'm happy for these chains to go, but I want you to know Jesus. That's the heart of the kingdom. Hmm. So we need to be careful that our lives don't present placards as slogans or political lobby groups as the welcome to those outside. And please be aware of church leaders or Christian lobby groups that align politically and advance a partisan rhetoric on local social and political, political issues. If they don't behave like Jesus, it's not kingdom. Or rather, me, this church, any group anywhere, is only kingdom in as much as it behaves like Jesus. Now, some will say, but don't we need Christians in politics? Shouldn't we stand up for family values and religious freedoms? Isn't climate change and the care of our environment important? Shouldn't we help refugees and so on? The answer is, of course. Of course. Your kingdom come. You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we, are, we stand for truth, right? We want to see Jesus' will and ways uh, in this world. And we should. Feel free, and I hope you do, to throw yourself into the righteous causes that the Spirit of God moves you to in freedom of religion, in climate change, in family values, in refugees, in child slavery. You, you throw yourself at what God's calling you to throw yourself at. Just a couple of things. Don't fight over your causes. And my causes, like, like my cause is more worthy than your cause. One of the classics in this, because it, it's represented in our political sphere, is sexual ethics and social justice. Okay, so which is more important to you? Marriage and, and um, sexuality and those sorts of issues? Or the care for the poor and the marginalised and the refugee? And, like, which, which matters most? Uh, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Why? Just, you can yell that out. How come? No, 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 not you. Everyone else can yell it out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? 
what sin? Sexual immorality, right? That's our, that's our story. Um, we're wrong. We're wrong. Let me show you this. God says this. I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. And we remember the story of Lot and the mob, the, the rape mob outside the door. Give us that, those people so we can have sex with them. That, that's in our, um, yes, for their, for their sin. Um, but here's the only commentary on that. In Ezekiel, Sodom's sins were what? It's the next slide. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside the door. You've seen that before? You see, when you go back to the story of Sodom and you hear Lot going, don't do this terrible thing. He's not saying... He's not even referring to the sex. He's talking to the, break, to the breach in hospitality in the, in the way that the thing is supposed to work in that, what they considered ethical in that crazy, depraved scene. Now, I only point that out to show you this. Uh, because is sexual purity important? Yes. To God? Yes. Really important. Are the poor and the needy important? Yes. Really important. We don't need to fight. We can just go, if you feel called to that cause, you go. But don't belittle mine. And this is where it's hard politically because you're going, can someone just get a kingdom priority that's kind of, you know, covers it all? <laughs> um, that's why it's dangerous to align politically because you have to neglect one for the sake of the other in this country. And that's really, really tricky. So don't fight over causes. Just, let's just champion each other while we maintain the priority of the kingdom, which is this. Which is this. Love the person in front of you. The way we treat people in our tone, in our selflessness towards them, that's the kingdom. That's the answer to all the injustices in the world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, right here, in me in my life, in my desires, in my motives, in my attitudes towards the people around me, and in the way I treat everybody. Whether they're in front of me, on my screen, at the other end of this text or tweet or post. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to love the person in front of me, and I'm going to follow Jesus into what he leads me to. I'll give myself away for the things he cares about, and all the while I will be the kingdom, loving the person in front of me, welcoming the lost home. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, it's hard to negotiate the um, increasingly tribal nature of the society that we live in. It's hard. It's hard for all of us. And we don't know the answers. I don't know the answers. And none of us really know uh, all of the nuance that you understand in this space. I pray that you would help your people, me and all of us, help us to be walking with you, to be hearing the voice of your spirit, to be dependent on you, and to be reaching out in love and truth um, to everyone that we meet. In Jesus' name, amen.